All right, it's Tuck Taylor here. We're live at the Beast Compound here in beautiful Clearwater, Florida. Uh, this is episode five of the Beast Thinking Podcast. I have a very special guest with me today. The one, the only, Mr. Mental Muscle, Nick Davenport, CEO, President of Mind Body One. Uh, definitely one of the leaders in the industry of brain training. Uh, Got the pleasure to meet him through social media. Uh, saw him doing some cool things, hit him up. Uh, we linked up, became friends. Now we're business partners. Uh, getting ready to come out with some great things uh, for kids, for brain training. So uh, welcome to Beast Athletics, Nick. Hey, I'm always happy to come through. Clearwater's like my second home away from um, South Florida, which is you know beach city, so it's like East Coast to West Coast. So I love coming up here, hanging out with you, and doing some things. No, I'm, exci- I'm definitely excited to have you on here. Uh, I feel like uh, people have missed out kind of on some of our great conversations that we've had already. We just should have had the should have had the cameras rolling. Uh, when, uh, some of our first couple of meetings, I think we met for like three to four hours. First oh, yeah. time we, we met, talked for like ever. Yeah, so uh, it's uh, we're we're both very excited about where the field of brain training is going. Uh, not just because it's a uh, uh, could be a possible. Um, lucrative thing but for the impact that it's making on people so i know the impact it's made on my clients it's made a huge impact on the people that he's worked with so in my opinion it's the missing link from your skills training with your athletes and in your strength conditioning i think that third piece is that brain training that's going to create that uh total athlete that that peak level performance athlete. So, uh, Nick, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what he likes to call the hidden muscle, which is the brain. Uh, so, Nick, go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about first, uh, before we get into that, talk about how you even got into brain training. Yeah, so this story I've told many times, so if you people out there haven't heard it, so basically the brain training for me kind of started at a, a young age because indirectly I was always a mentally tough person and I would put myself in more challenging, stressful environments, not knowing that was a good way to evolve in my brain training because I was just doing it because I like challenges, you know, so I grew up with that mindset of you got to overcome obstacles, so when I became an adult, I got to college and I'm like, what do I study? I went through about three or four different majors mm-hmm. and I wanted to be an exercise science major, but they didn't have that at my college, Bethune Cookman University. So I'm like, okay, PE seems similar, which it wasn't. It was no offense to any PE majors, <laughs> it was boring to me. Right. So I switched to history because I love history. I'm okay. one knows me personally, I'm a history fanatic. But once again, it was boring because it was a structure versus just learning facts. So I switched that and I went to social science education to be a history teacher because my advisor was like, hey, you need to find a major. So I'm like, eh, I'm still not feeling this, but it'll do. And then I had to take two psych classes. And immediately I fell in love with how the mind works. And I'm like, you know what? Psychology is for me. So I switched over to psychology. And once I graduated, I thought like, okay, I did psychology as an undergrad. Okay, let me be a therapist. Because my advisor didn't really tell me like, right. what else you could do. And let's be real. If you think psychology, what do you think of? Therapist. A therapist, right? right? So I went to be a therapist at, for my master's. And while I did like some parts of it, there was a lot of aspects. I don't really hate to say this. I don't want to hear people's problems all day. 100%. Even indirectly, I do now. Doing right. What I do. But it's cool. So I had a classmate, right? Mm-hmm. Her name was Nicole. I forget her last name, but I'll never forget Nicole because she gave me the piece of it, or anti-advice, just to say, because she told me not to go into sports psychology. Because I'm like, what's sports psychology? She's like, well, I got my master's in it, and she was in my program for mental health counseling. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what's that? And she was like, well, it's pretty cool, but there's no money in it. And me being the 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 different type of person I am, like, I don't care about that. This sounds like where I need to be. So right. I immediately switched my major to sports psychology, and the rest is history because that led me down the rabbit hole of learning about how the brain, cognitive performance, not just athletics, but just performance as a human, how it can be helpful. And that set, like, the foot, the foundation for Mind, Body, One back in, that was, like, 2012, 2013, around then. And then it was just basically me saying, okay, I got this degree now, and or I'm going for this degree. I didn't have it yet. And I was into athletics because I'm a former athlete, so I'm like, how do I bring them together? Right. And that was like the foundation. Like, okay, I got the mental side now. I've always had the athletic side. But it was just a theory. Mm-hmm. And it had a turning point or several turning points. Three things would happen. I would have a daughter, then lose my job making 40K or so a year as a teacher, and my great-grandma would die of Alzheimer's. All this happened in a year span. Mm. So not even a full year probably, maybe like eight months, this all happened. 
And that pushed me because, one, I needed a career and income. So I took a job as a mental health um, assistant to a psychologist who had an addiction center. And he basically said, do you want this job because you're overqualified? You got a master's. You have experience. You're a teacher. I'm like, yeah, because I want to learn the field of the brain and treating 100%. it from a, a more of a holistic and neuroscience background because I didn't have that. Psychology, we're going to talk about a little bit between neuroscience, psychology, um, cognitive conditioning, all that. But it just said that I want to do this. Right. The pay was very low. I would mm-hmm. say it was like ten, eleven dollars an hour. Wow. Mind you, I had a, uh, I think a thirteen hundred dollar uh, rent, uh, a five hundred dollar car payment. Uh, at the time, just dropped a seed. Just had a daughter. <laughs> oh man. So making ten dollars an hour from making forty k a year was a significant drop. But I said I want to do this. And then when my great grandma died of Alzheimer about four months later in mm-hmm. um, June of that year. This was a wake-up call because how that happened, not that she died, it was in fact how it went about because I had a friend, his name is Dante, one of my best friends, he was running track and training for the Olympics because he's one of the fastest athletes back in the NCAA when we were in college. Mm-hmm. And he said, I mean, I went up to, uh, to meet with my daughter and it was in Claremont, Florida. And my grandma, great-grandmother is in Ocala, which is about an hour away. So I said, maybe I could go see her because we knew she was in her last stages. Mm-hmm. But then... Basically, the meet went longer than we thought it would, and I had a one-year-old, so it was like 8, 9 o'clock, and it was just not a good scenario, so we went back home, and I was like, maybe I'll try to go up again next week, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, next week didn't come for her, oh, wow. and she died. Oh, wow. And that right there said, I felt a little bit of guilt, a little remorse, a little regret, mm-hmm. but I said, I can't change the past. I right. said, you know what? Since I can't help her now, she's gone. Mm-hmm. I went to her funeral, I cried, I'm, I'm not one of those... Boo-hoo people, but I cried because it was like I didn't see her, and it was like ten years before I saw her. Right before. Oh wow! So it was a lot of time I had passed, wow. and I never got to see her again. Mm-hmm. So I said I can't change that, but maybe I can help others. Mm. That's mm. how Mind Body One was born. Mm. That, and it was still just a seed then. Mm. It's not what it is now, but that was the foundation. Mm. Saying I want to train the brain. I gave up strength training, which is a more lucrative business, as you can say. But I said, I don't care anymore. I want to train the brain. That's where my life work is, and I haven't looked back since. Wow, 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 wow. And I don't know if y'all ever heard that out there in That's impressive, in TV man. Land. And I'm a, big, <laughs> I'm a big believer on the foundation that you set your business up on. It's so important. Uh, it, it definitely sounds like it's rooted with passion, uh, rooted with intrigue as well. And I think if you, if you have that passion, you have that intrigue, you can build up, and if it gets broken down a little bit you'll still that foundation will still be strong for you to continue to build on so that's great that you have set up your your business based around your passion uh for myself i always wish that i could have known some of this stuff when i was a college athlete i would say i was a little bit opposite of you i don't think i had the mental toughness i wanted to be tough I had the desire to, but I just hadn't had the self-awareness of what was actually going on in my brain when I was playing. I was one of those guys that would play awesome in practice. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pickup legend. <laughs> yeah, I'm a pickup legend. Like, I talk to people all the time, like, man, so you still hooping? Ah, oh, man, I gave that up. But uh, I could never perform my best, I felt like, when it mattered the most. And that used to get to me. Because I put the work in the weight room. I put the work in the skills. But I could not perform my best when it mattered the most. And once I started stumbling across brain training, that was my aha moment. Is like I want revenge on some of those games where I had panic attacks. I also had a situation in college where I had a panic attack giving a speech in the communications class. And I just walked out. I just turned around and walked out. Like, got my first C ever in school ever in that class because I, did, I never returned to that class. He said, the only, way, the only way I'll give you a C is if you go see a cognitive behavior therapist. So that was my first kind of uh, glimpse into the world of cognitive behavior therapy and brain training with that. And uh, that was kind of my eye-opener. And since, you know, implementing a lot of the stuff that I teach uh, on myself, I've been able to overcome a lot of my fears of public speaking and performing when it matters, and it feels great. And so now my passion now is to teach that to everybody else. So uh, good stuff, man. Uh, obviously, you guys see a lot of similarities in our stories. Uh, we're both uh, former athletes. We both have dreadlocks hey, as well. Something in dreads. Maybe you should go dress for the brain. Yeah, man. It <laughs> might be. Hey, it might be something Great like brain. Tra- it's, it's strength in the dreadlocks, man. All right. Samson. That's right. That's right. 
All right, so let's get into this this hit and muscle, man, and your philosophy over the hit and muscle. Uh, we want to start with uh, cognitive versus psychological. I just want to start with mental negligence. Mental negligence, all right. So it, the term negligence gets uh, attributed to, I guess, bad things. And yes and no, because we all neglect some things. No mm-hmm. one can be 100% on anything in life, whether it be physical health, mental health, a job. There's going to be aspects you're lacking on. So it's not a bad thing. So don't think, oh, negligence means I'm just lacking on something. It just means we need to give attention to where it is lacking. C- correct. So I like to tell the audience, like, do you actively train the brain? And some people are like, yeah, I read, I, I, I go to school. And that, while that is brain training, and I commend anyone who does those things, it's not the same when you actively make drills or, or, or games or whatever it is that are geared towards specifically training brain attributes. Because it's like saying, let's use this analogy of a race car driver. Mm-hmm. If I drive, let's say, uh, we're both in our 30s, we've been driving at least probably 15, 16 years, right? Right. Now, can we say since we've been driving 15 years, we can go be the best NASCAR racers? No. 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 Because driving, yes, is required. Right. But we weren't driving to that level. Right. Like Jeff Gordon and all those other people, they've been driving at high speeds on tough tracks with 50 other cars for 20 plus years. So they train in those standards. So when you train the brain, it's the same thing. Just like with the body. If you work out, you're not going to say, well, I walk to get around in life. Therefore, I'm in shape. No, you walk just to get around. You need greater stress, right. a greater challenge. So when I say mental negligence, it's saying we need to do stuff for our brain that's directly. And it can be simple stuff. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the simple thing is, why am I not training the brain? Why does it even matter? So we've talked a lot about... Um, how brain training helps with mental health than just being able to alleviate stress or deal with anxiety. So things like that, we look over, because a lot of people say, hey, like you mentioned about your career, like you probably had coaches say something like, just get over it, ran up or toughen up. Even simple stuff like, oh, you need to breathe. But do they ever really teach you how to do any of that right. stuff? And what type of breathing? Exactly. Right. We know not me and you know now, but back right. then, I didn't know what diaphragmatic breathing right. was. Right, me either. Thoracic breathing, right. you know, but the coaches don't teach you this. It's not, this goes back to negligence. Right. They're not intentionally, I don't think, trying to hurt the athletes or their students or whatever. It's just that they don't know. And I, and I believe, too, you know, they say, you know, we all know the quote, Sports is 90% mental, 10%, 10% physical. physical, but we spend 90% of the time on the physical. And I think the only we reason why <laughs> is because the model for the physical is there. Like, mm-hmm. you know how to lift weights. Mm-hmm. You know how to, like, coaches know how to draw up plays and drills and all that type of stuff. But the model to train the actual brain wasn't really present until now, until guys like me and you are dedicating our lives and our time and our careers to creating a systematic form for people to come in and actually work on training their brains so they're less anxious in the game. So that's why, you know, that's part of the passion on this. Uh, why do you, do you think, uh, where do you think, where do you think, uh, now that you train people with the brain, do you see more, do you see less Mental negligence, do you see more of a desire for them to come in and really, are they excited oh, yeah. to train their brain? Oh, yeah. This is the thing. It's almost like a, like with kids. You mm-hmm. got to kind of get them to buy in first. Most people aren't going to just be like, heck yeah, I'm going to do this. It's more so, one, they got to understand what they're doing. Because mm-hmm. when they see it on Instagram, like a lot of people out there see my videos, and they're like, what, what is actually happening here? Right. It's not like a physical drill. You see someone doing a squat, you know they're doing a squat. Training the legs. You see some lights or you see some colors or some sticks, some numbers, you don't know what the protocol is. Right. So once they get into it and actually try it, the ice is broken, most of them, you can attest to this, you've been 100%. doing it. They kind of get hooked because one, it's challenging, it's mm-hmm. different, and they understand, because most people understand it's important to train the brain, mm-hmm. but they just don't get how to do it 100%. and why they should do it. They just know it's good for them. Right. But like you said, there's no protocol really laid out. So we're doing... Or even the aspects on what you're training, like working memory, which you talk a lot about, and impulse control, mm-hmm. which you talk a lot about, and those, you know, hand-eye coordination, those different things. They don't even know the, you know, when you, when, with the body, you know you train your legs, your arms, mm-hmm. your cardio. With the brain, what are, what are you training? You know? That's a good segue. Yeah. So let's talk about cognitive versus psychological. Because you hear the terms cognitive from us a lot, and if you don't know what that means, we'll get into that. And you hear the word psychological a lot. And they're not really different, but at the same time, they're not the same thing. Because cognitive, let's say it's like a car. You have an engine. 
the engine uh, has uh, oil in it so the pistons can pump up and down to make the motor run. Mm -hmm. You have an alternator. It keeps the current charged so the electricity can keep flowing through the car, etc. Right. So these components of the car make it go. Mm -hmm. But you need somebody to drive that car. This is where psychology comes in. So cognitive is the actual structure and the function of the car. Right. But psychology is the behavior. So if I'm sitting there driving erratically because we got people, we in Florida. I don't know about other states, people mm -hmm. out there, but... Florida has some of the worst drivers. Facts. So you got people who are all over the place. They don't check their lanes. They just go over. They don't put their signal on. So this could be the person who's impulsive. Mm -hmm. The person who just goes without thinking. Mm -hmm. Then you got the drivers who are super slow and cautious. These are ones who are timid. Mm -hmm. And they, they're not really risk takers. Right. So you can see the parallel because my behavior is dictated by my cognition. And my cognition plays a factor in my Psycho psychological, but they're not the same. You need both. Right. Because if you just train your psychological, say go to a therapist, they'll teach you, okay, you have to make sure you cope with stress better. You make sure your anxiety doesn't get the best of you. But what's making that anxiety, anxiety trigger? Right. If we get, we don't want to get too deep, but that's a, a overactive prefrontal cortex. I mean, your, your brain waves are off the charts. Right. Your, your thoughts are going too much, too fast, too soon. And this is causing you to be antsy. Therefore, it translates to how you act amongst others. Because if I'm sitting there, man, it's taking so long, and you get antsy, you're going to make behaviors that are probably not going to be conducive to a better outcome because you're not going to wait. So, so where does, like, consciousness come into play of this? Would that, would, would that be, would that be psychological, right. or is that a whole other... It's a whole other topic, but believe it or not, I took a class called Attention and Consciousness, uh -huh. and it's actually a lot of it is cognitive. Okay. Because our consciousness, like, let's go into, like, say, free will. Mm -hmm. Do we really, like, perceive what's happening, or is it already predetermined in our brain and then we make the action afterward because there's some scientists that say it's not really free will but it's free won't so it's not that we're choosing to do something it's just a series of choosing not to do something oh wow so but this is a debate it's not saying this okay. is real or fake it's okay. just some scientists saying okay. it's free will we make actions versus free won't because they did a study and they had a timer and it was a clock with a, a second hand going around the clock mm -hmm. and then it had a keyboard and whenever you felt like it you press it Mm -hmm. So they basically analyze the actual pressing of the time, and it tells you, um, well, I skipped the part. They had an EEG headset on, too, mm -hmm. to read your brainwaves. So basically, they would say, I think I pressed it, decided to press it at 18 seconds. Okay. But the brain lit up before that. Mm. So it was crazy because they say, like, if they claim they made the decision at 18 seconds, but the brain lit up at 14 seconds, mm -hmm. did they really make that choice right. was it a subconscious action of not to do something so there's a lot of debate on that because obviously studies only show certain amounts so we can't make a full generalization but at the end of the day yes consciousness is a big part of how our brain actually functions but psychological aspect does play a factor because we talk about mindfulness too right that's how do you direct your consciousness because right now we're having this podcast but maybe you're thinking about what i got to do later make dinner get my son or Whatever. Right. So are you in that moment? Right. Maybe you are, maybe not. So it's a lot of aspects to it. So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all question, but it definitely has an integration when it comes, you know, to that aspect. So what do you, what do you, so we'll move on to the next one then. We'll move on to, what, RSVP? RSVP. That, that's, you, you're on point with these segues right RSVP. now. That's a good segue because we're going kind of counterclockwise. Yeah, yeah. But that's cool. We didn't yeah. mean for it to go like that, but hey, yeah. it is what it's it is. Just, it's just, I do what I do. I'm a podcast you host. Me? You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> well, I think we get some love on Instagram too. I oh, saw nice. a heart pop up. Nice. I can't see the screen, but thank you for the love. Appreciate you guys. Um, so RSVP. So this is an acronym I actually made. When um, I was working at the addiction center, so going back to Mind Body One's uh, birth, mm -hmm. when I was working at the addiction center, I was doing something called neurofeedback, and that's basically when you put on an EG, EEG headset, and an EEG, ah, tongue twister, an EEG with these brain waves for those out there who don't know. So we would make them wear them and watch a movie. It was okay. connected to the movie or the computer screen. And if they're in a, I'm not going to go into like alpha waves all that. But basically, if it wasn't the appropriate that's wavelength, next, that's definitely a great topic for a next podcast. next time. Yeah, yes, definitely. Yes. So if they weren't in those right states, the screen would shrink and get distorted. Okay. So by proxy, they don't even have to do anything. They have to calm themselves down and just be mindful so mm. they can return because subconsciously your brain wants to see that screen full. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did for them first. But then the the um, owner he said. Well, you have a master in exercise science and you have a degree in psychology. I want you to make a program that mixes the mental with the physical. Mm. And I call it, I called it, this is the original name, it's called 
the Mind Body Group. That was all it was called. Mm-hmm. So you can see where the name Mind Body One came. But gotcha. so basically, what it was, it was thirty minutes lecture, just like mental toughness drills and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. thirty minutes exercises that were physical. But I made do challenges like I had one called Thought Stopping Squatting when they had to have a partner. So mm-hmm. let's say we're partners, mm-hmm. and you have to squat. Every time you think of a word I give you not to think about. Let's say red elephants. Mm-hmm. So every time you think about a red elephant, you're going to squat. Okay. So I'll give them a minute. And it's obviously, it's an honor system. So the right. goal would be to do as little squats as possible. So in that minute, you have to talk out loud, just verbalizing your thoughts. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I got to go to the store later. Um, I got to see my girlfriend. And anytime you thought about the red elephant, you do a squat. Oh, so wow. I would do drills like that because okay. it's mixing the mindfulness, the, the psychological as well as the physical. So basically that, that led over to a topic called RSVP, which is resilience, self-efficacy, vigor, and perseverance. So resilience is just basically, can you bounce back from adversity? Because we all go through it, 100%. but a resilient person, think like a rubber band. A rubber band can get stretched, stretched, stretched to its limit and get thin as possible. You let it go, it bounces back. Right. So you got to be resilient when stress comes upon us. It's not to say that you, you have to ignore stress because that's probably the worst thing you can do. Mm-hmm. A resilient person acknowledges the hardship. 100%. The difference is they're going to look at it. We talked about this yesterday, warrior versus warrior. A warrior is going to say it's a challenge, mm-hmm. but a warrior is going to say it's a threat. Right. Because when your brain responds to a threat, it goes into fight or flight mode. And, How do I cope? How do I cope? What do I do? Versus a challenge like, okay, we need to make sure we do this and then you attack it in a way that Yes, the stress is on, but I'm going to be reactive and attain the ability to do it versus going to a panic mode, you know? So that's resilience. Um, Self-efficacy. This is basically a a fancy word for confidence, but it's a little different than regular confidence. Regular confidence is more so, oh, I think I can do something in the light of just, I can do it. Self-efficacy is more specific to the task. Like Mm -hmm. someone who say good at, say, basketball, they're good at shooting. That means they're very confident in their shooting abilities, so they're going to emphasize that. Right. So think about regular life outside of sport. We usually tend to do things we like mm-hmm. and that we're good at. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're usually good at what we like, mm-hmm. and we usually like what we're good at. It's mm-hmm. like a, I call it the snake eating its tail. Like right. It goes one with another. But if you don't work on what you don't like, how can you really get better? So self-efficacy is something we have to have a high level of on all our tasks. So you have to kind of put yourself, once again, in stressful situations to get better. Because if I don't get better at my, my defense and only work on my shooting, I'm going to do worse at uh, defense, and right. you say, oh, my defense sucks. And you're just a now, shooter now. Now, in real life, I get this a lot since I teach or mm-hmm. taught. Um, people say, oh, I hate math. I suck at math. You always hear that, and it's like, why, though? Because you don't want to do it. Right. You emphasize, oh, I'm good at history. Or, I'm good at writing. Cool. Work on your strengths, but work on your weaknesses more. So self-efficacy is being able to have a high belief in your abilities and tasks. Um, vigor. Vigor. So vigor is your physicality component. So we're still talking about mental, but there always is a physical mm-hmm. uh, component. So vigor is how uh, ready am I physically for a task? And this doesn't mean strength or necessary muscle or anything like that. It just means, am I capable of doing this? Do I have the physical components, whether it be in a job uh, field of, okay, I need to work on X, Y, and Z. So let's say you got to stay and do some extra work. Am I physically like alert? Am I tired? You it's like I mean? competence, physical yeah, competence. Yeah, exactly. Okay, gotcha. I'm not physically competent. Whether it be right. being alert, tired, fatigued, up, uh, drowsy, strong, weak, fast, slow. These all can fall under there. You know, I, I like that too because I think a lot of people outside of sports don't think about the physical competence that it needs to excel at their job. Oh yes. And like now, being a business owner and really getting deep into my entrepreneurship, like you don't think about. The, how entrepreneurs need to be in shape. Their, their bodies have to be mm-hmm. at a certain level to really uh, be able to you know, work those long nights or wake up early in the morning or deal with different degrees of stress. So exactly. that's good. Like, I, I really like that. I like that. Yeah, so um, vigor, you got to have that physical component, like you said. And the last one's perseverance. Now, perseverance is a double-edged sword because... People say, oh, I can persevere. I can stick through the tough times. Yes, you do need to stick through, but you got to be mindful of what time, tough times are you sticking through. Right. Like, let's say right. if you're in an abusive, not necessarily physical, but say a, a toxic relationship, um, there's something called a sunk cost fallacy. Mm-hmm. When people feel they got to keep investing time or money or effort. Like, I had a friend who was in a, a relationship that didn't last, and I kept telling him, why are you still doing it? I never told him not to, but I was just like, why? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I put so much into this. 
My family's met her. I've been with her for X amount of years. So we feel when we attribute so much effort, whether it be financially, physically, emotionally, we got to keep putting it in. But it's a sunk cost because that's not necessarily going to make it better. So the same thing with perseverance. You got to make sure the cost is worth what you're investing. So you shouldn't hold on to it just because you want to say, I can tough it out and make it work. So what would be a good self-check for that to make sure that that thing that you are persevering is worth the effort to persevere oh, yeah. through? I think the easiest way is, does this, this is a challenge in my life to be with this scenario, this relationship, this person, this job. Because mm-hmm. if you say I'm going to persevere, but you constantly got to complain or you constantly got to feel a certain way, depressed. And I get we got to fight through it. But mm-hmm. if it's an everyday thing, like, there's nothing wrong with being like, okay, I hate my job. I have days like that. Well, not with my mind, body, one stuff, but I have other stuff. I, but at the end of the day, I know this is temporary. Right. If I'm every day, like, this is not for me, this is not helping my life. Because there's a difference between maintaining and actually and, and, uh, progressing. You know? right. Anyone can maintain, but if you're just staying there just because it's something to be or something to do, mm-hmm. then is that worth sticking around for? Right. And I guess that's the best thing to ask. Well, if I keep doing this, will I be better than what I want to be? Gotcha. Most people won't ask themselves Is this question. progressing me somehow? Most people don't or don't want to ask them questions because they don't want the answer. <laughs> they know it. Most yeah. people know that. Let's be yeah. real. Yeah. We're entrepreneurs, and we've taken many risks, and we still do. 100%. And we're not going to say it's easy. It's not. But how are people going to sit there and say, I can get this if I just give up something that's going to give me stability versus mm-hmm. fulfillment? There's a fine line between the two. But at the end of the day, you got to take that chance. Right. And persevering, you only want to persevere on the side that's going to progress you and make you better, or you're going to persevere on the side that's going to keep you the same. We chose this side because there's a lot of risks and problems on this side, but there's risk and problems in maintaining. 100%. How many people who are monotony that, and boredom, yeah, not able to go up? And, we're going to talk about how that affects your brain. Like, working a dead end job is bad for your brain. But let's go, we talk about vigor. Let's jump over to your brain on exercise. Yeah, we're going across the board. I just oh, we're, cool. we're, not, we're not even going in order, folks. We do it how we want to do, man. We do it how we want to do it here. So, Your brain on exercise. The reason I wanted to go to that because it goes back to, like you said, I like that point you made about certain jobs. They don't think about the physical components of what I got to do at work. We just mm-hmm. think about, oh, I got to clock in and figure out what to do for my assignments but what about your body is your body in tune to that right so your brain on exercise remember back in the day if you're under like 21 or 23 you may not remember this but there's a commercial and like this is your brain on drugs the and it'll crack the egg yes yes so your brain on exercise so i'm a dead a myth not a myth but a, a misconception because mm-hmm. it does affect your brain so everyone out there probably heard of endorphins right it's a magical chemical that makes you feel good when you're physically active Wrong. It doesn't make you feel good. It's a endorphins actually stands for endogenous morphine. Mm-hmm. Endorphins. And if you know what morphine is, ladies and gentlemen, it's a, a chemical that makes your body numb pain. Yes. That's why when you're in the hospital, you feel good because you get oh yeah, the pain's numb because yes. you can't feel it. And that's what endorphins do. So it's not necessarily you feeling good. It's just eradicating the pain that you should be feeling. Gotcha. Like for example, we're both athletes. We both probably had this happen. Say you're in a game and you get kind of injured, but you get back up and keep playing for the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. You're fine. Mm-hmm. That's your fight or flight system at work. Endorphins right. are flooding because your brain don't know if you're in a jungle trying to survive or you're trying to win a football game or a basketball. It just knows you're in a fight or flight state. Ooh. So the endorphins numb you. Mm-hmm. But what happened the next day after the game was done? The, you were sore. Ooh-wee. Your legs was killing you. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, did I break my ankle? Because right. your body said, we got to get through this. It just knew it was a situation. It knew it was a basketball game or a football game or a track meet or, or a ballet recital or whatever. It just knew we had to get through this situation. And that's about why endorphins are important. But let's go back to a chemical you probably heard both of us say a million times. B, D, N, F, brain-derived neurotropic growth factor, which is the chemical we really want to emphasize when it comes to exercise because while endorphins are helpful, endorphins actually cause the brain to work differently, make the, the neurons and the connections stronger. It makes the uh, neurons fire in a different way. And this is what actually makes our brain stronger. Yes. So just doing 30 to 45 minutes at a moderate tempo, like 70% of your heart rate, will have this chemical flooding through your bloodstream. But there's more to it than that. You need to do exercises that also challenge you to do different types of movements, different types of coordination. Because running on a treadmill straight don't take too much thinking. Right. You know, like we talk about why does this even happen? Go back to ancient times, the hunters and gatherers. You, I think the studies say we would walk, well, not us, but they would walk about... Uh, I think three to seven miles a day, mm-hmm. anywhere between, depending on the day, but right. three to seven. How many of you out there can say they, they walk three miles this month? Right. 
Well, I know it's right. early. So three miles this is last month. Many can't. Right. So that actually caused their brains to flood with this BDNF. And while they were hunting and gathering, searching for safe food to eat, they had to use their, their neurons, had to use memory, working memory and long-term memory. Or when they were hunting, they had to track animals. They'll get the feces and, you know, how they mm-hmm. do on <laughs> ten, 10 miles that way. Like, that, right. that's what they had to do. And that took a lot of cognition. Cognitive flexibility. Exactly. They had to figure Make a bow and arrow. Exactly. Right. And this cognition mixed with this physical activity is an adaptation that we still can harvest today through exercise, but many don't. How many people are active? Not too many. I can tell you one thing is like some of my most profound ideas about business, I just set my car alarm off. <laughs> yeah, it's me. I set on my keys. Uh, Some of my most profound ideas about business and life and just anything else has come during while I'm on the elliptical. Just getting my heart rate up just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm like, ah, that's a great business idea. Ah, that's a great idea. I never thought about this that way. And uh, I I definitely see a lot of CEOs, that's their thing. That's the reason why. It's not about fitness for CEOs. It's about BDNF for CEOs. When they wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, the first thing they do is work work out so that they can start to get the these connections time. flowing. That's the best yep. time to do it. And so. just to reiterate those, to clarify, BDNF, let's liken it to saying it, it, it's like a miracle grow. Like if you're familiar with the the, 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 the chemical miracle grow, it's for gardening, help with uh, plant growth. It's the same concept. Your brain cells, neurons have branches, and when they grow and get larger, it makes the connections easier to spread signals. And if the signals can spread easier, it means you can think more efficiently, right. make decisions more efficiently. Right. So this has a lot of implications. So by getting more BDNF to flood to your bloodstream, you're making your brain cells more equipped to work efficiently. You're getting more power and more bang for your buck. You know, So exercise is definitely good for your heart and your body. Obviously, get six packs, that's great. But do it for your brain, too. All right. So stress out. So I want you to lead this one because you're big on the stress factor, and I'll chime in. So uh, I'm, 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 one of the things I do when I teach my, my uh, Beast Thinking seminars, we have a whole section on stress. And one of the newest additions we talk about is kind of the paradox of stress. So stress is good, but stress is also bad. So the statement that we have in our program is that our bodies are built to adapt to stress, but they aren't built to sustain long periods of stress. Yes. All right? And that's where the latter half of that statement is where a lot of people that experience the negative effects of stress is what they cause because they are under a long period of stress. Uh, The refractory period from that stress response is way too long. So they say the stress response is only supposed to last about 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. So once you hit that flight or flight mode and your brain figures out what's going on, 90 seconds, that's it. Anything after that, your brain is causing that to be longer than what it is. So they say like if uh, uh, a zebra gets chased by a lion in in the wild, it takes about 15 minutes before that zebra is uh, is back to grazing, back to hunting for food. If we were to get chased by a lion today, we would tell everybody about it. We would, re- we would replay it in our mind. We would keep ourselves in that elevated state of stress uh, because we don't know how to properly manage stress. Mm-hmm. So part of the big thing we teach, uh, especially when I do my corporate gigs, is just stress management, how to identify stress, how to deal with stress, but also how to properly stress your, your body out and your brain out. We talked about that earlier. It's like if you're not working slightly above what you're capable of, you're not forcing your brain and your body to adapt. So uh, that's kind of my spiel on, on, on stress. I agree 100%. Stress, um, I don't know if I took, did I tell you about my tourist versus the uh, resident theory? Uh-uh. So I've probably beaten this to death in all my talks and podcasts, but I stand by it and I feel this theory makes a lot of sense. So let's say you go to Paris. Have you ever been to Paris? The, uh, the airport, that's it. Okay, let's say you went to the city. Okay. See, I've never been to Paris. So I'm a tourist, right? Mm-hmm. I see the Eiffel Tower. Oh my God, let's take pictures. Ha, ha. Oh, it's the, the uh, Mona Lisa. Oh my God, let's take a picture. Mm-hmm. Like you're getting excited in the way that you can't really think straight because you're so in the moment of what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. Right. You're the tourist. So in a stressful situation, you don't want to be the tourist. No. Because a tourist misses details. Right. The tourist panics. The tourist doesn't make the best decisions. Right. You want to be the resident. 
So think about someone who grew up in Paris. Mm-hmm. While it's still great to see the Eiffel Tower every day, while it's great to see the, the Bastille or whatever else sites they have out there, it's like, well, I've seen it, I've done it, I've adapted to it. Right. Next. So if I go to the Eiffel Tower with you, you're freaking out. Oh, my God, oh, my God, it's so cool. Well, I'm just like, this is Eiffel Tower. I can make clean decisions because I've seen it. I've been there. It's right. nothing to me. Right. I can tell you about it. Right. I can write a book report on it. But you, on there, you can't probably say much or do much because this is your first time exposed to it. Right, I'm freaking out. So you want to be the resident in the stressful situations. So that's why I call it the, the tourist versus resident theory because fight or flight is going to happen. You're going to be stressed. That's why I call this part stressed out because, like you said, there's good stress, there's bad stress. But in the day, stress is anything that changes homeostasis, meaning right. balance. Standing up from your chair, that's stress. Right. But you want to put the same magnitude of that versus having a big test tomorrow. Right. You put different... Cognitive aptitudes on that. What's that right? called? Cognitive appraisal. Exactly, because right. there's right. cognitive uh, anxiety and there, there's somatic anxiety. Mm-hmm. Two different types. Because cognitive is like, man, I have to do a, a speech in three months. And three months leading up to that, you're freaking out because mm-hmm. you're just thinking about it. But somatic usually doesn't happen until the day of. Right. Hey, you, so don't t- get, you don't get butterflies uh-huh. three months out. Tell them what you told me about what you do to some of your students sometimes. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I know some of my students follow me, so y'all know this. So basically, we do a, um, a chapter on stress, right? And I, that day, I'll have the lights dimmed. I have um, a three-question quiz. I give them a minute to do. And they're three-word problems on chapters we've done like on uh how the body adapts to aerobic energy systems and stuff like that so i give them one minute and i make extra stress on them because the time limit is short one minute for three questions that are written out you gotta think a little more so their first thought is is there enough time so i say ready begin start it every 20 or 15 seconds i give a time update so the first one is at 45 45 seconds and i just keep a straight face don't say nothing else like what (laughs) <laughs> 30 seconds well, there's no time and by sign they realize they just said that 15 seconds and then the last five I'll be like five four you hear them ruffling around three two pencils down pass them up and I'll walk around take them from them so I was like let's go over it so we'll go over the test mm-hmm. and all of them oh man I didn't get that oh man I didn't get that so I tell them this test was worth 10 points each that's 30 points oh man I got zero out of 30 says it's gonna hurt a lot of your grades so they're like what so I'll walk slowly to the trash can or recycling bin, ball them up, drop it in the bin and say, welcome to class. Today's chapter is stress. stress. <laughs> and then I've even had students walk out the class uh-huh. because of that and get pissed off at me. And I had to run them down and be like, hey, man, was it for real? And that just showed you how we can take just mental processes and turn that into a worry. Like, I always say this to them during that lecture. Later, uh-huh. I say, so if you did get a zero on this test, could a zero give physical harm. Could a zero kill you? Right. And some of them be like, no. But half of them be like, yes. I'm like, how? Right. They'll say, well, if I fail this class, I'll get depressed, I'll drop out of school, I'll get miserable, and I'll kill myself. And I said, do you hear all the things that happened before you got to that? Right. And at the end of the day, the zero didn't do that. No, you did, did that. that. Right. And they'll be like, but it caused me. And I'm like, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's your perception. And that's what anxiety is, for the most part, for the most part, is not real. There right. is real anxiety. Like, we're on a plane, and the, the pilot's like, okay, everybody, um, we're losing altitude. Our engines are out. Um, there's about 20 minutes for, or 10 minutes before we hit the ground. And you have every right but to But that's panic. danger. Exactly. That's, you're yeah. in danger now. Yeah. So yeah. it's real. Right. You can panic then. Right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But if you say, like, say, with stress, we turn the switch on. I call it a light switch. 90 seconds, but we keep that switch on for days. Yes. So if you're still worrying days later, guess what? Fight or flight, don't know. Are we safe? Are we not safe? And so, hey, we're going to keep going, guys. Let's, He's let's, not safe. let's talk a little bit about we, we've been saying fight or flight. Let's talk a little bit about some of the signs and symptoms, too, of that stress response. Uh, and really, in respects to athletics and any other high level job performance that you're doing. The, the big thing that I teach my athletes and my CEOs and the public speakers that I work with is that the reason why you want to avoid that stress response at all costs during those times is because the big thing is because that stress response zaps your hippocampus, mm-hmm. which houses your long-term memory, long-term memory yeah. and your spatial awareness. And it also has this panic button in there called your amygdala. Amygdala, yeah. Yeah. So think about as an athlete, the ramifications of taking away an athlete's spatial awareness. Now you can't see, you have no peripheral vision because you get this tunnel vision. Uh, long-term memory. You forget how to do all the skills that you've learned over a lifetime. So in that moment, you're this guy. 
in the fight or flight or freeze. You're freezing. Or you're overly aggressive. You're the guy that goes in the game and gets two quick fouls because you're too amped up. Inverted you. Right. Or your your first shot is over the whole backboard. You know, I've seen it happen. It's happened to me before. I was definitely the guy that would go in and get the two quick fouls. Mm-hmm. You know, so if if you are able to not have that response elicit now – and you, we, we talk about brain waves. Uh, if you can get to that alpha state, now you're more creative. Now you can pull from your long-term memory. You have better spatial awareness. Exactly. You're no longer the tourist. You are the resident. You've been here before. You can't exactly. speed me up, i.e. James Harden, i.e. Mm-hmm. Steph Curry. These guys that play at a high level, they are definitely residents. You can't – they send multiple defenders at James Harden, and he's still averaging 36 points a game on the mm-hmm. cool on the cool because you're not taking you're not taking away his long-term memory you're not taking away his spatial awareness he sees all that so for athletes out there that are possibly experiencing the stress response during your actual sport uh that's what's actually happening to you uh what are what are your some of your uh directions or advice you can give someone playing a sport to help manage stress a lot better well put themselves in handicaps like whether it be visual uh, physical, auditory. So let's say a simple one. Mm-hmm. Let's use basketball because I used to work with a basketball team like in 2014 and I used to do a drill called Man Down. Mm-hmm. So this school was the lowest in the division. They're in division with some of the best teams. I don't know if you heard of Blanche Ely High School. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in that division. Okay. So Blanche Ely, in that year, I was 2014, I was working with them. They had some some hooper. They had 6'8", six, 6'7", six, all uh-huh. can dunk, shoot for days. And they're playing this team where the tallest guy was 6'3". Oh, wow. And he wasn't big. He was just mm-hmm. skinny. So they had a severe size of disadvantage, athleticism disadvantage. So I called drew a man down, so they would have to play with four starters against five of the reserves, yes. and purposely have to play with a disadvantage. So mm-hmm. it would be more uh, more harder to do because you have less people, regardless of ability. You only mm-hmm. have four and you have five, so that means they could double team a person and never have to worry about someone getting beat. Right. They, they have an extra player. So by them doing that. It got them adapted to being undermanned, under uh, power or overpowered, undermanned, and overstressed. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying this is the only reason, because I also did their strength and conditioning too, and their coaching was good. So they did a lot better this year. They went from winning only, I think, one game the year before to winning seven. Nice. So, you t- so your solution would be practicing with in a, stress uh, in a but, stressful situation. But a disadvantage, because stress can go by many names. Right. So that's one situation. You can do free throws when you have people screaming your head, their head off. Because a lot of people do free throws in the calm environment. It's like, okay, practice over, hit 10 free throws or 20 mm-hmm. free throws. But shooting in the most safest, calmest environment. The game's going to be cheerleaders screaming, right. fans honking hard, people in your face, right. eyeing you down. So you need to get your brain adapted to that. Right. And uh, uh, this is kind of a segue, but relevant, but not relevant, because we're talking about stress. Um, studies have shown, because someone asked me a few years back, does stress affect um, mentally tough people different? And the answer is yes. But it's not that they don't get stressed, because fight or flight is a human. 100%. Uh, uh, it's going to uh, happen it's, regardless. It's going to happen. Right. But what they saw was cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone mm-hmm. that breaks down energy for fight or flight. Mm-hmm. It comes down quicker in those who are more adapted and mentally tougher, like Navy SEALs. These guys stress and freak out just like we do. The difference is they know how to keep that in control and stay in the right zones instead of freaking out. Because them, freaking out means you're dead. Right. One wrong, what, huh? Right. You, you're on the ground. Right. You're dead or you're hurt or someone or someone in your crew is hurt. So that's a lot of pressure you don't want. So you got to put yourself in states that's going to raise that cortisol, but then you have to take it in your own ability to bring it back down by being either more calm and relaxation with your breathing or just interpreting the stressor differently. I think a lot of it, too, is it's knowing that it's happening. Knowing oh, yeah. that the because some if you're not conscious enough, the it, it's it's going off. It's just like I knew my car alarm was going off just a couple seconds mm-hmm. ago, and I had the switch to turn it off. Some people's car alarm goes off mentally, and they don't know what's going on. They don't know that they're freaking out. So to me, the first step is self awareness. That's what we teach our athletes. And then the second step is understanding diaphragmatic breathing. So what I've learned in uh, through neuroscience and and working with a lot of guys that teach stress management is that when you are having that stress response, you do more thoracic breathing. So yep. somebody that's, <sighs> you see their that's, chest rising. That's and, and that's just continuing to send that, out. yeah, and sending that signal to the brain that the body is under attack. There's a threat in your environment. 
And so to combat that, you do what's called diaphragmatic breathing. So as you breathe in, the belly expands. As you breathe out, the belly contracts. And this is, they say, this is the breathing that you would do in like a euphoric state or a utopian-like environment where there's no threat yep. in your environment. And so by just switching your breathing, you're sending a signal to your brain that the body is safe. Which, again, you're going to have that stress response, but you're going to shorten that refractory period by saying, hey, I'm good, bro. We're good. This is just a basketball game. There's no exactly. lion getting no ready to dying. chase me. There's nobody in here <laughs> with a gun. Um, what, would, what would be another tip you would give uh, athletes or anybody that, that needs to deal better with uh, stress? Well, tell yourself, kind of. you kind of just said it, like, you know at the end of the day, there's no real physical outcome. Yes, there's real stressors like, that are mental, like losing a job or doing bad on a test or a relationship, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, my, my personal belief is if it can't physically hurt me, I surely shouldn't be scared. Right. Yes, mentally we do have like down things that put us down. I'm not saying ignore that, but if I know deep down this can't do harm to me physically, I know the worst thing that can happen is I just interpret it in a way that is not as beneficial, and that's the worst thing that can happen. Right. So once you understand that there's no true horrible outcome that can physically take you away, then that takes away at least that side. Right. The thing is, we interpret things as if we're going to die. Right. People we go do, do public do. speaking as if they're going to have a heart attack. <sighs> you cannot die from speaking in public. You there can. is no way to die from it. But you get up there, some people <laughs> sweat. I've had students do this. Uh -huh. I've seen this. We do a, a presentation every semester at the end called Three Minute um, Presentation where they talk on the top of their choice. Their choice. It's just three minutes. Three minutes. Wow. And some do great, and some literally have to walk outside and catch their breath, and I'll say, you need more time? And they're like, I can't do this. And I'll have to give them a makeup assignment and make them write a five-page report on it mm -hmm. instead. And I'm like, this was easier than a five-page report. 100%. But, it's like, but the sad thing is because they're seeing it as a dangerous thing. Like mm -hmm. I said, there's danger, there's fear, and they're two different things. Danger is something that's an imminent threat to you. Right. If a gun to my head, there is a chance I could die. But if I'm scared of giving a speech, it's just me thinking that I'm, I'm afraid of something that has no physical implications on my life at all. Another thing that I tell myself along the same lines, I got this from uh, Mel Robbins. You know Mel Robbins? No, is? She's, she's a psychologist. She's really good. Uh, but she said that, that stress looks the same. Stress, not stress, excitement and fear look the same in the body but are interpreted different in the brain. Exactly. So what she says is that if you are going to get ready to public speak and you feel that stress response kick in, you need to tell the brain that you're excited about doing it. You're not afraid to do it. Because fear means that it could, physical harm is imminent. But excitement is that, hey, this is just, there's a lot of people in here and there's my peers looking at me. I'm just excited about doing this. And again, it's all about shortening that refractory period for stress. We don't want, again, our bodies are not built for chronic stress. It's built to adapt to short periods of stress, but we don't want to keep that going on. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much my, my spiel on stress. Uh, if you guys have any questions ever about stress, definitely hit us up at uh, Mind Body One, also Beast Thinking. Uh, we have a lot of tools, a lot of tips that we can send you guys as well. Uh, was that all of our? One more. Oh, we have challenged. one more. I almost tried to one end this thing. thing. One, one more thing. thing. So the reason I wanted to finish with mentally challenged because it goes back to when we say mental negligence. Why aren't you training your brain? So these are ways you can do it without any. Now, cognitive conditioning is my method that I use, and we're trying to grow it. But there's many ways. If you follow me, you've seen me post drills that don't require any equipment or any crazy tools. So the simplest thing you can do to challenge your brain and then train it is to expose it to novel activity. That means things that it's never done before. Mm -hmm. This could be a walk in the park, a park that you've never been, do a, a hiking trail. This could be skydiving. This could be learning a new instrument or reading a new book. This is what makes our brain have to adapt because when we do things, the neurons fire, they get stronger when they have to do different routes. Because you think of your neuron as like a puzzle. Like on this table, we have different things. So let's say this alignment of neurons is how we ride a bike. If we do it enough times, that gets solidified. But then it doesn't get challenged as much. Now we can say, let's ride a bike up a steep hill. The neurons just change. Now they're stronger because now they have different routes to get to a different task. And the mm. more routes you got, the more advantages you have. Mm. Think about if I said, hey, we need to get to point A to point B, but I know a shorter way. 
because I've trained my brain to make these connections in a way that is more efficient mm -hmm. versus the guy who didn't do that and they're like trying to figure out this one way to go. So challenge yourself is very simple. Now that's just one way. Now we talked about physical. So like we said, physical activity and exercise is good for the brain, but make sure you do activities that aren't so linear and monotonous. Yes, still do your steady state cardio. Yes, do your lift, but try to change up with drills like like a sport even, like tennis, basketball, because when you play those type of sports, you have to react to other people's movements. And the brain can't predict it, guess what? We just talk about a novel or new activity, a new motion, new movement. You can't get nothing better than a sport because you never know what the way they're gonna go. And then of course, the, another way you could do is learn. Just learn something new. Like go on YouTube every day when you wake up for five minutes, watch a new YouTube video on a topic you never thought of. Whether it be a topic you like or don't like. Say you try to do a topic. I actually watched a YouTube video last night on the history of math. Growing up, I was not a big fan of math. And I'm, I'm cool on it now because I'm an adult. But I knew nothing about a lot of stuff in that video. Guess what? Those neurons had to realign again. And give one little tip before we check out. Why is this important? Because here say neurons and all. Like what does this mean in layman's term? Let's talk about anxiety and depression. These are, we'll end on this note. So, as humans, mm -hmm. we get the anxiety, we get depressed because there's something going on with the neurons, the brain cells that are firing in a way that is arranging us for us to be less involved in our own thoughts. So, when we remember a memory, the neurons that are associated with that memory will line up. Guess what? If you're depressed, you're going to keep thinking of this memory. That's called rumination in psychology. Mm -hmm. If you ruminate on a topic, whether it be good or bad, those neurons are going to line up again in that order. They get stronger and then you put it to other situations guess what if you attribute that depression or that anxiety to a situation that isn't the real cause say to another person or another scenario they're rearranged for that scenario and that depression and anxiety gets stronger because our memories and neurons are linked together how they're arranged is how we train them the brain can only do what we set it out to do like we have default mechanisms yes but most of our brain is plastic meaning it can be rewired and of course, you got to ask yourself, are you wiring it for the better or for the worse? And I'm going to leave this note and then Tuck can sign us off. Just know, where the stress, anxiety, depression, I like to use this term. Don't worry if things get negative, you're having a hard time. Because remember, even batteries need negative to have power. Mm. I think I'm, I'm going to leave it on that. So I do like <laughs> to leave off with a challenge, though. What's, what's going to be, give, give the viewers a mental challenge uh, that they can do today, tomorrow, a part of their day that they can, something that they can do every day to kind of challenge their brain. We okay. kind of talked about that, why, like looking at new information, but give me something more specific on that. So this is what you're gonna do. Go home, whenever you get off work or go to school, whatever, you're gonna watch one YouTube video on a topic you've never heard of. And then the next day, the suggested video that is on there next, Watch that one. Mm. So every day you're just going down a rabbit hole of topics that you probably never even thought of like. And you might find something you do like in the mix. Simple. Everyone has a phone or a computer. Go on YouTube. Go down the rabbit hole. Find a new video that has nothing to do with something you like. And you might find something new and then go on the next video the next day. And as you get more into it, you're going to find yourself going on more than just one video a day. I promise you because I do this personally. I'm on like 15, 20 videos a day. Like I said, I was doing the, the, psycho or the history of math. That has nothing to do with anything I do, but... I was looking up game theory after that. Then I was looking up um, physics. These are all topics I never had any investment in. And guess what? I'm getting my mind right. <laughs> all right, guys. This has been a Beast Thinking Podcast, episode five with Nick Davenport. We're definitely going to have him back. Uh, might even make him a co-host or something, man. This, we got to do something. We got to this, this continuity has to stay. Uh, so it's your boy, Tuck Taylor. We're out. Make sure you train the brain or you will remain the same. All day. All right. Get your mind right. <laughs> That's a wrap. Cut. Let's go.